Who has their Bible? Does everyone have their Bibles? All right, if you don't, I want to encourage you to bring them. Even though we put the, the, the passage we'll be doing in the bulletin, I want to encourage you to be in your Bibles, to bring your Bibles. Is that all right? Because we're people of the Word. So Mark asked me to read the passage this morning out of Galatians. We're doing a series on Galatians we started a few weeks ago called Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And today we will be picking up in verse 11 in chapter 2 of Galatians. And please feel free to read along. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in, G- in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If, while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Mark. Morning. How's everybody? Good? You're a good-looking bunch. Must have had your coffee and you're ready to go. We are touring the letter of Galatians. And, you know, it's evidently Paul's first letter. Um, he's got some concerns. His big concern is don't add anything to Jesus. Jesus is sufficient. And last week, Brendan talked about one of the things that's really easy for us to slide in and add without even realizing we're doing it is when we start comparing ourselves to other people. He was talking about stargazing, you know, comparing yourself with other Christians, other people at work or people who you think have it all together, and you lose touch with grace in what Jesus wants to do in your life when you do that. And when that losing touch happens, there's something that we need the body to do. We're hoping that somehow someone will help us with this. But it gets caught up, and it gets caught up in the section that Brendan just uh, read. But it really gets caught up here in Minnesota, I guess, because we've come up with a kind of a tag for when we can't do this certain thing. And we call it Minnesota nice. Do you guys know what I'm talking about when I say that phrase? 
Not like it's nice in Minnesota, but it's the idea of, you know, people will say one thing to your face, and then they'll do or say something else to another group of people. Has this happened to you guys? Talk to me. Yeah. I mean, in reality, do you really think it only happens in Minnesota? It's like you drive across from Wisconsin, and it hits you. It's like, oh, I got the, uh, no, I've got the disease. I mean, I, I grew up in Wisconsin. It happened there. I experienced it when I was a junior in high school. People thought they knew more about Mark Spencer than they really knew, and boy, they were talking. But you guys, there's, all, there's websites. If you Google Minnesota Nice, there's websites that are like support groups and, and t- give you tutorials on how to live in Minnesota. I'm serious. Isn't that that's crazy? It, but it's, it does get tagged. And, and so on one of these websites, I'm looking at it going, wow. They painted a scenario. And see if this sounds familiar. It says, you and Bob have been working on a project for weeks. In the last meeting, you discussed a way to address one of the thorny issues you bumped into. And you decided on a course of action, which Bob needs to follow through on and do. It's been a week, though, and he hasn't done anything You've reminded him, but still, no progress. Huh? You say? This is the weirdest thing. Bob is usually on top of things. But he said nothing to you, but slowly in the office, you're hearing from others that he said a whole lot to them. He doesn't like the plan. Does that sound vaguely familiar? Really? Yes, there. Now getting some head... head I mean, it, it happens. I can remember... When I did cross the line and came to Minnesota, and I was uh, not yet a Christian, believe it or not, you guys, I had hair down to the middle of my back. Boy, I longed for those days. I should have saved it because I could, like, reattach it. But anyhow, I wound up working at this certain college that uh, was, I I guess you could call it, very preppy. And in in the same town across there was a town that was kind of free-spirited, People always wondered, how did I wind up at this certain preppy school? Because I did not fit the bill. And so one of the people that I reported to would, would uh, you know, they'd always say this to me. And I kind of wondered what they meant. But I'd walk in and, and you guys, you know, I, I was just me. Sometimes my blue jeans had holes in them and I'd have my hair in a ponytail and go in. And this, this dean of women would look at me and go, Mark. You look nice, which I found out later was code, like code for saying, Mark, get a haircut. Mark, get some new pants, for crying out loud. You represent the college. But never would she talk to me. She kind of talked around me. Do you guys know what I mean by that? And so and later on, I found out, oh, that was code. You know, if she doesn't say anything, it's probably good news. If she says something, it's not so good. So we've got to look at this text We've got to think about the life that we live. You guys are nodding your heads, either politely or you're in this, where you realize this kind of thing of telling the truth is a challenge, isn't it? It's a big challenge we face. So I started thinking, okay, why, why is it hard to go and tell someone what you see or what, what appears to be true to you? And I came up with a number of things. And I'll I'll give you my reasons, and then maybe you guys can toss them out. First service did. So the first reason that we don't go and tell someone the truth is I think we're concerned about how they're going to react. We wonder, 
If I go tell this person what I see, what am I going to get back? Does that hit you guys? It's like, I don't know what I'm going to get. Am I going to get beat up? Are they going to cry? Are they not going to talk to me for the rest of my life? And when, you, when you've got to talk to someone that you work with, that's risky, isn't it? If you've got to talk to someone you live with, that's almost borderline insane, right? You're like, what, what are they going to do? So you ask yourself, you know, I don't know how they're going to react. And so you don't say anything. If that doesn't get you, this one will. You see something you think is true. You figure, I better talk to him about it. But you find yourself asking the question, who am I? Who am I to go tell them the truth? You know, and, and you start to wonder, am I being judgmental? Am I being critical? And, 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 and am I an authority? Who am I? Does that ever hit you guys? That kind of a thought? It's, it's interesting in my life because I have five siblings and um, family never changes. Have you noticed that? Family, the family dynamics don't change just because time is moving. And the way it works in my family is everybody will talk about what's going on except talk to the one person who's got it going on. And it's very handy when you've got a marriage and family counselor in your family. So they will hold conferences about this certain somebody in our family, and they will talk about what needs to be told. And, and I'm usually the last to hear. I think maybe because they're worried about me analyzing them too, which I don't do. But they call me, and they'll say, Mark, we're concerned about so-and-so. And we've all, whoever all is, it's kind of like when someone says, everybody's saying this or everybody's doing that. I'm like, who's all? They say, well, we've all talked, and we think you should talk to them. God has a plan for your life, and so do we. Or like, here I am, Lord, send Mark. Send, you know, <laughs> have them do the dirty work. And usually what happens to us in this is, you know, we're, we're looking for an out. But the reality is, is that if God is showing it to you, there's some part you probably have in it, either to pray or to say. And we'll talk about this in a moment. But I think over the years, the biggest reason I hear why people don't practice the art of truth-telling, is they're worried, if I tell you some truth, it opens the door where you can tell me some truth back. Right? Be honest. It's like, ooh, if we do this, we're opening the door to all kinds of conversations. And so in your relationships, you kind of secretly negotiate this weird pact that says we can't talk about this stuff. And yet it really frustrates you. So you've got to go someplace with it. So where do you do You go to the neighbors or your friends or you put it on Facebook. And we've got to figure out how do we get past this, right? So is it, do you think there's any other reason that you've encountered why people don't practice truth-telling? Don't want to be a hypocrite, right? Too much of an effort? It is work, isn't it? Man, it's work. It's good work, but it's work. Huh? They didn't grow back east. Yeah, like you did. An Italian family on the east coast. If you want to know the truth, go to Barb's family. They'll give it to you. And a pizza. So the reality is, is, is we don't typically practice this. And, and really, I found it in Wisconsin. I found it in churches that I've helped with in Indiana and Ohio. I mean, it's part of humanity, isn't it? To risk opening up and telling the truth is tricky. 
But if we don't learn to do it, there's a huge cost. It's why Paul does it. Paul doesn't do what he does in Galatians 2 because he has some foresight and knows, hey, if I do this, it's going to get written in the New Testament, and then people will read about it at Bridgewood Community Church on this Sunday. That's not why he's doing it, right? He's doing it because it matters. It's critical. We'll talk a little bit more about this. But one of the things that happens if we don't do it, which should alert us, man, this, this can't happen, is this thing called triangulation. Have you ever heard of that? You ever heard of triangulation? This is what it looks like. It looks like there I am, and I notice something that doesn't appear to be right with you, or vice versa. You could notice something that doesn't appear about, right about me. And you start to wonder about it. And oftentimes when you start to wondering about it, it it's easy in, in the course of meaning-making to make all kinds of meaning out of something. Like, have you ever had someone who's said something to you, it's got in your head, and it keeps rolling around, and it's becoming a huge runaway snowball down the slope of your brain. Do you know what I mean? And pretty soon, a comment that was just made in passing becomes a huge offense because you're sure they meant it, and it was mean. You ask them later, and they go, I didn't mean that at all. Am I the only one that does that? My wife does. <laughs> I mean, it happens to us, Right? Now listen, you guys, take a deep breath. I know this isn't the most fun subject, but Galatians takes us here, and I really think it's critical that we think this through because if we don't, this triangulation happens. And so I don't know what to do with it. And so what I do is I find people that agree with me, and I form this huge alliance of, hey, this is what I think about Mark. I think that too. Well, I think... This too. I think this as well. And you have a huge club talking about Mark, but Mark doesn't have any idea that it's happening. And no one's talking to me. Has this ever happened to you? It doesn't just happen to pastors. It happens to us in everyday life. And so what happens then is you begin to cut the person off because in the group discussion All this information has come up about this person, about who they are, what they do, what they don't do, and they're cut off and they're exiled. And when that happens, triangulation happens. It's why Paul is so concerned. He he says this in the chapter. The other Jews joined him, Peter, in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is led astray. So this whole group is over there talking about, ooh, those over there, they're, they're Gentiles. They, they, I don't, they don't really follow the law. And you should follow the law. After all, the law was given to Moses. And Moses is a big hitter in our whole faith practice and history. And so if you're not doing that, I don't know if we should sit at their lunch table. Go to junior high sometime and watch how the sectioning happens. Do you remember junior high? The pain of walking in with your lunch bag and wondering, where can I flee to? Do you remember that? And what you're worried about is what will happen? Who who will let me in? Who will push me out? And if we don't do this, this exiling happens. And it's a cruel kind of exiling. You don't even get a chance to learn and grow. 
The way one, one group of guys who studied this dynamic, they put together this thing called the Johari window. Have you heard of it? It's funny how they came up with the name because one of the researchers' name was Joe and the other guy's was Harry. So they said, hey, Johari sounds good. Let's do that. True story. But here's the idea. There are things that are known to you and to me. They're kind of open things. Like, what is my name? You can say it more confidently. I mean, it really is. I'm not like living under an alias or doing something weird. My name is Mark, right? What do I do for a living? Pastor. That's open. We all know that. It's kind of shared information. Then there's another window that's unknown to you. For example, you guys, maybe, maybe you don't know this. I think you don't know this. Sometimes, one of the things I like to do is when no one's home, I take my guitar amp and my Stratocaster and I plug it in and I put on this thing and I play really loud blues songs. It rattles the windows. So now you know that. But it was hidden from you. Would you have said, hey, do you know Mark? Yeah, I know Mark. What does he do? He's a pastor. What else does he do? He plays really loud electric guitar music when no one's home. You wouldn't have known that, right? So that's hidden. Now, the, that doesn't hurt anybody if you don't know I play loud electric guitar music when I'm alone. <laughs> that doesn't hurt you. But you kind of wonder, well, what else are you hiding? Peter was kind of hiding, wasn't he, in this passage? Now, here's where it gets very tricky. There's this area here that's the blind spot. You know something about me, but you don't tell me. And I'm left alone and I'm blind. That's scary. I mean, have you ever had an experience where someone's wrist telling you the truth, and when they tell the truth, they go, wow, you're right. You're right. I hope, for the sake of your human experience, you've experienced that, where someone has courageously and carefully, in a sense, corrected your trajectory. I really do. So one of the things that... um, the staff has discovered about me is I have this strong addiction to one word. Yes. And so someone will say, hey, Mark, can you come to this meeting? Yes. Hey, Mark, can you counsel this couple? Yes. Hey, Mark, can you take out the garbage? Yes. Hey, Mark, can you sweep the floor? Yes. And I'm addicted to the word yes. And so now the staff is working. They say, there's an easier word. It only has two letters. It's N-O, no, but it's really hard for me. It's hard to know, what do I say yes to, what do I say no to? Because if someone asks you to do that, can you do that? I can do that, yeah. And the staff will go, say no. And they're helping me with a blind spot. What do I do with that? If I don't get help, because it truly is a blind spot, if I don't get help, I'm in deep trouble, right? We've got to be able to open up those blind spots. And then lastly is this quadrant where it's unknown. You don't know, and they don't know. And that, that's, a, that's a scary thing, but community tends to bring that out. Now, this whole thing that Paul is doing in this last section of chapter 2 is critical because we carry the gospel. Do you realize that each one of you 
are a letter to the world. Do you know that? As soon as you take the name Jesus, you are a living letter. And people are watching to see what does the Jesus in you say to me? How you live, what you do, what you don't do, what you say, what you don't say. It's all telegraphing what does a person with Jesus Christ in their heart look like. Do you realize that? And if we don't work to a place where we're refining that in a loving, caring, spirit-charged way, all of a sudden we find ourselves doing things that someone as gifted and as talented as the Apostle Peter does. Do you agree with me? I mean, you could disagree with me if you don't follow that. But is that not true? If Mark Spencer is left to his own devices, Mark Spencer's in trouble. And what Paul is doing in this moment is he's setting an example of when it's so important for us to be a truth teller in another person's life. So we want to ask him, how, Paul, how do we do it? How can we tell the truth? And in this section, he gives us some really important things to think about. Are you guys still breathing? Okay, good. How, how do we honestly, when we see something, that we feel like we've got to say something about, what do we do? Well, look at this passage. Well, Caiaphas, it's Peter, it's, it's his surname, came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. How did Paul deal with this? Did he send an email? Of course not. I mean, he didn't have it then. What a blissful life to not have email. Can I get an amen to that? He did not Facebook it. Imagine that. He didn't tweet it. He didn't even call on his cell phone. What did he do, people? Yep, face to face. Peter, we got to talk. Now, he is going public for the group's benefit because he's modeling gospel to them. And he's teaching us. You see, he didn't talk to Barnabas. Hey, Barney, what do you think about this guy? He didn't talk to anyone at the church. He went directly to Peter and said, we got to talk. This isn't right. Face to face. Nose to nose. We've got to do that. When, when you are, when you, has it ever happened to you where you get an email from someone and you read the email and you misread it? You read it and you go, oh, this doesn't sound good. Has that happened to you? Whole companies have policy about things you can say and not say in email now. Isn't this true? Because email is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional life. And when you study, we we take in over 90% of the information by looking at someone's face. Does what their face say match their words? Does their eyes, what happens in the window of their soul? What's their body language communicate? And so this idea of going face-to-face is critical. So I remember when I was called to go down to this church in Burnsville. And it was one of these situations that was, uh, it was a, a setup. The guy that had taken over for a dearly loved pastor of over 30 years was a very personable guy, um, founding father of the church, he retired, and then tragically, he passed away within a year. 
This guy came in. He had never pastored before. He's a very bright guy. I mean, his IQ is probably off the charts. Um, he had taught theology, but he had never pastored people. It's a different deal than teaching a class. And so what was happening was the congregation is used to this guy that was tenured over 30 years. They'd known this guy. He was a father. I mean, he was, he was everything they knew about a pastor. And then this guy comes in, and he's not at all like him, doesn't lead like him, and there's a collision. So the, the group tells him, we've got to find a guy that's pastored before who can help us figure out community work, and they came looking for me. And they invited me in, and I became the Oreo filling between the two sides of the cookie, the congregation and the pastor. Sounds like a great job, doesn't it? So what the congregation would do is they would come, and they'd try to triangulate. They'd tell me all that was wrong with the pastor, and then they'd do just what my family did. Hey, you're a counselor, aren't you? Yep. Fix it. For crying out loud, fix them. No, it doesn't work that way. And then with him, I think he probably wondered, because here I come in, he's never pastored. I, that's what I've done in my adult life, is pastoral work. So on the very first day, I walked into his office, and I sat down in front of him, and I said, if you hear anything from me, hear this. Look right here. I mean, I was really straight with him. I said, I want you to know two things. Number one, I will never lie to you. Never. I commit to you right now. I will never, ever lie to you. Okay, he said. Number two, I don't want your job. And remember, I just said I'll never lie to you. So you don't ever have to wonder, is he saying this or doing this because he wants my job? I don't want your job. I don't. That was critical because he knew Time and time again. And there were times where people would come in and they would tell me all the things that, you know, basically take this guy out and stone him if he doesn't do this and this and this. So I'd say, will you come in and talk with him? Never. Will you come in and talk with him if I'm with you? Some. But that's hard, isn't it? When someone comes in and they start telling you things that aren't necessarily pleasantries, and then the person would leave or the couple would leave or sometimes, in some cases, the group would leave and then he would look at me and he, got, he, he used to say this. He'd take a deep breath and he'd go, okay, so tell me slowly what just happened. And you could just see him trying to figure this out and the stress of it. But it all had to be done under this guise of, listen, pastor, I'm never going to lie to you and I don't want your job and I will talk to you face to face. I'm not going to collaborate with people that are talking about you over there. I'm not going to cycle through the, the, the gossip chain or the hotlines. I'm not doing that. I'll come right to you. How much healthier would marriages and families, churches, schools, workplaces, organizations, neighborhoods be if we did just that? Very healthy, right? And what Paul is saying is we can do this. In fact, he's saying we must. And I'll get to that in a moment. But if we're going to do this, we have to be sure that we're dealing with truth. Because what Paul says here is he says, when I saw that they were not acting in line with what? The truth of the gospel. Paul is not going to Peter and going, 
I'm sick of it, Pete. You never sit at my lunch table at the cafeteria. How is anyone going to respect that I'm an apostle from Jesus Christ if you don't come and have hamburgers with me at my table? It's not about personal preference, is it? And what you've got to do as a truth messenger, as a truth teller, is be sure you have the truth. And so it's so critical that you pray before you say, Lord, what are you showing me this for? Are you showing me this? What does this mean for this person? And Lord, what part of what you're showing me am I supposed to say? And how am I supposed to say it? I have to admit, I had gotten to a place in my picture, because we picture the disciples, don't we? The people, the characters in the Bible. Like Pete. Do you picture Peter as this small little guy with a soft voice? No. He's loud. He's big. He's rambunctious. When he makes a boo-boo, it's boo-boo everywhere, right? And so we have these pictures. And my picture of Paul, I have to admit to you, had gotten to this place where I, I kind of saw him as this ornery, bit of a nitpicking, kind of mean-spirited guy. Part of it's, I'm a Barnabas, so I really don't like how that ended. You know, you read in the book of Acts, they had a sharp disagreement and they went separate ways. What? Stop. Don't do that. But have you guys wondered about Paul? I mean, give me some feedback here. Have you kind of wondered, is this guy, is it, like you'll hear people say, he's kind of a woman hater. Oh, he's just so straightforward. It's like, Paul, get a little bit of velvet in your life. Quit banging people around. Do, do you guys wonder about this? I mean, this is how I wonder about it. What I realized as I read this chapter over and over again was, no, this guy is literally like from a different planet. He is so caught up in the kingdom, he is compelled to tell the truth. I don't think he went to Peter and said, Peter, step out in the alley, buddy, because we're going to duke it out. I don't think, do you think he did that? I don't think he even came in yelling to say, Pete, you're a moron. Get it right. Did he? Do you guys think he did? I, I even start to wonder, because think about this. If this is Paul's first letter, he's a rookie. And who's Peter? Who is Peter? He's not one of the disciples. Peter's the big disciple. Come on. It would be like me sitting Billy Graham down and saying, we need to have a talk. Doesn't that seem crazy? That's what this is like, though. And then, and then I got to go public with it because, you know, Billy Graham's misled a bunch of people. I say, here's the word. This is very, very serious. They're not acting in line with the, the truth of the gospel. And if you don't act in line with the truth of the gospel, you begin to misalign people because you're a living letter. I'm a living letter. If we don't live according to the truth, we're living according to something else. And if we're living according to something else, something else is going to come out of that. So Paul risks all this. And he does this because he understands something, which he finishes this whole chapter. We won't have time this morning to really take apart the verses. But he understands this thing called justification by faith. Started the Reformation again. Do you know what it means? It means that I'm right. 
because God made me right. It does not mean that when I'm right, I've got this superior intellect, that I've done the research and it's kind of like, come on, Brendan, catch up. I'm on page 363. Where are you? It's not that kind of a thing. It's the realization of God has made him right. He's making me right. And together we'll be more right. And when you begin to live out of justification by faith, you begin to realize, just like Paul talks about, that there's a calling on your life. It's why he opens up the letter and says this. It's not the credential. He says, my name's Paul. I'm a what? An apostle. Who sent you? Not men. Who sent him? Jesus. An apostle, a messenger, sent not from men, sent by Jesus. You know what? Not just Paul is an apostle. If the gospel is in you and in me, we have a message, don't we? And if we're a letter read of all men, people are watching and listening, and you have a message to share. You have a message to live. You have a message to guard, to make sure. And you need to speak the truth even when it hurts. You need to say what you need to say in moments because the gospel you carry is the very power of God. It's, it saves souls. It changes eternal trajectory. It heals. It mends. It cures. It fixes. It writes. It lifts up. It takes his ashes and turns them into something beautiful. This gospel is the only thing in the universe that does that. And you carry it. So do I. People watch it. And when you notice all of a sudden that somehow this gospel is jittering off the English, we, like Paul, have this divine call. Not because we're a goody two-shoes. Not because we know more. But because the blood of Jesus has said at one point in time, you're mine. It's purchased you. Purchased me. When Jesus hung on that cross and he breathed his last, he said, Father, forgive Mark Spencer. He doesn't have any idea what he's doing. I am right because of that, not because of this. You are right because of that. And when I sit down and I talk to someone, they sit before me and they are right because of that blood. So am I. So the conversation, not to be gory, in a sense, is covered in blood. And you realize that out of this place of justification, we can have a hard conversation. And we can, we can talk about the things that are starting to make our faith look jittery. And we can do it in love, because when we do it, we build the body up. And anything else that's not like that looks like this guy set up. Anyone work on cars? I don't even know how he got the car to do that, or the truck. It's a truck, for crying out loud. He's got a block. That's good. But he's got four by fours stuck in there. He's got a welding torch, and he's welding close to the gas tank. If he decides to lean back to catch his breath, there's not much room between him and those four by fours. If he loses those props, what's going to happen, people? Yeah, can you say squish? When we don't, have a firm grasp that we are justified by Christ. Not only are we justified, but we are called. 
You're apostles. You have a message. Sometimes you will have a message directly from me. And I'd like to hear it. If it's gospel truth, I want to hear it. Honestly, I'm not just saying that because it's sermon time. I want to know. I try to live my life above reproach but not beyond it. Because I know Mark Spencer, left alone of Mark Spencer, is in trouble. If there's something that we need to talk about, then for the sake of the gospel, let's talk. Everything else is just propped up like this. So you need a determination. If we're really going to be truth tellers, and if we're really going to live out this, this letter of Galatians, and if we're really going to follow Paul's example and lovingly talking to Peter and saying, Pete, what are you thinking? We need to have the firm resolve of who you are in Christ and the fact that he is working in and through you. In 1980, a young man hit a crossroads. He was a relatively new Christian, and he was in Rwanda during tribal wars and conflicts. And one of the things that they were coming after is anyone who is a Christian. And so they had trapped this guy, and they had said to him, Listen, you either renounce your faith or you're done. At that moment, he had a firm commitment to say, I'm not renouncing my faith. And he was martyred. None of us look forward to such a moment, right? Let's be real. It's like, Mark, that's the victorious thing. But here's what I want you to get. Every time you get a sense of truth, And then you pray and you say, God, is this true about this person? And you brave walking across the fear zone to actually have a face-to-face conversation. You are doing what Romans 12 says. You are a living sacrifice. That is a beautiful act of worship when you do that. Jesus is up there going, wow. They're living like the book. When they went back, his friends went back to this guy's uh, hut. They saw that he had written in his journal the night before this. And I'll, I'll scroll through it. Let me get past this slide. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame vision, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few. My guide is reliable. My mission is clear. I won't give up, shut up, let up until I've stayed up, stored up, prayed up for the cause of Jesus Christ. I must go till he comes. Give till I drop. Preach till everyone knows. Work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no trouble recognizing me because my banner will have been made clear. Do you think this guy had some serious gospel resolve? You think so? Church, I'm asking you something. 
I'm asking you to live this. I'm asking you to help me live it. I'm asking us not to just read Galatians, but to live it. That's the resolve we need. That's the kind of sense of I am determined to live truthfully and help others live truthfully as well. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's a serious thing. It can make us a little jittery to think about, oh boy, we're really going to do this, do truth-telling, look out. (laughs) But I think if we're aware, justification by faith, we're right because you say we are. And if someone helps us get more right with you, that's a good thing. So I guess, Lord, what I pray for is help us get it right and help us do it. The church has been crippled because we've had too much triangulation. We've talked to others but not talked to the person in love. So I pray today we would drive down a determined stake to say, let's do this, Lord, for your glory and your sake. And let the body be what you've designed her to be. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you as we take this morning's offering that you just continue to listen. God, what do you want to say to me through this message this morning?